First Peter chapter four. Our text is from First Peter chapter four. Will be the last three verses of the chapter. And writing to the first century Christians who were learning what it means to suffer for the faith. New converts, of course, some from Judaism. And because they went from the Judaism to the Christianity, they, of course, were ostracized by families and despised because you've forsaken the faith of our fathers as they would not receive that other's Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah. And they were going to suffer for it in many ways, but the Gentiles as well, as, as we will read, Peter is preparing them for what he calls fiery trials, being despised by men, and not only despised in time, but abused in the end and assaulted. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that it must be showing that you have turned from sin, and the world hates that. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of, says our life, could just as well say your life, may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye, I'm going to use the word, still don't run with them in the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you as they were converted and left these former friendships and now were reviled for that. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, that is, according to the word of God. If any man minister, that is, will be of service, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. 
And if any man shall suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now comes our text. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Thus far the reading of the Holy Word and our text consists of those last three Verses 17, 18, and 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4. They must be read, of course, in context, having to do with this coming intensification of suffering, even to the point of explicit persecution. In the context of what you read in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer. And then notice, or as a busybody in other men's matters. And that has to do with the use of the tongue in demeaning and abusive fashion in speech that is derogatory and perhaps even slanderous of others. And there's a lot of that going around these days. And what's striking, beloved, is that when those who call themselves Christians resort to slander, the apostle puts them in the category of being a murderer and an adulterer and a criminal. It's that serious. We may be the object of slander and abusive language, but let us never stop, stoop to resort to the same kind of language. Let us be above that, beloved. But what our passage reminds us of is if any man suffer as a Christian. And when I read that phrase, I think of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 32 of Lord's Day 12. And the question is this, and why art thou called a Christian? And you can consider that from two points of view, can't you? From a doctrinal point of view, from a certain perspective. Why is it proper that a believer, because he's a sinner should be called a Christian. Because though we may believers, we're great sinners. And that title Christian, of course, is the title given to Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ and the Messiah. And we should carry that title so that somehow we are known in the community as being Christ-like. Is that proper? How can that be proper? Great sinners that we are imperfect, even in our attempts to reflect Christ. And the Catechism reminds us, well, the meaning of the term Christ or Messiah, Greek and Hebrew, 
is anointed, and we have, like Christ, been anointed, but we've been anointed with Christ's anointing with the Spirit, and so are prophets, priests, and king, and so from a doctrinal, objective point of view, it's a proper label to give believers, sinners though we may be, like Christ, or prophets, priests, and kings, and Christians then. But there's another way to ask the question, isn't it? Isn't there? And why art thou called a Christian? And are you in the community known as a Christian? Why, pray tell, are you? And is it simply because, well, you've been baptized and you belong to a reputable, reputable Christian church? And if you've been baptized and belong to a reputable Christian church, you're a Christian. That's all there is to it. And meantime, one's life doesn't conform to the scriptures. But when I die, some clergyman's going to say good words over me. I died as a member of a reputable church, you know. It's more than that, isn't it? Are you, am I, is the question, walking worthy of the name? And let's not quibble over the name worthy. That's found in scripture, you know, walking worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, says the apostle in Ephesians chapter 4. Walking worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walking in a way fitting and harmonious with the name by which you are named as Christian, anointed with the spirit of Christ. One of his disciples does it show, and that's why you are known as a Christian. That ties in with the text because the apostle is saying if that's how you live in a distinctive Christian and Christ-like manner, be prepared to suffer reproach, mocking, derision, and in time it may well become more intense than that. Just go to Dort University or Kelvin University and let it be known that you belong in that you be, believe six day creation just like the Bible says and actually a universal flood and that the LBG movement is contrary to the scripture and find out what the community thinks about you really? You think the world is flat too? Just some reproach, some derision. And if you actually begin to oppose these things as real sins and talk about the judgment and wrath of God, now they become angry. Now who do you think you are? Be prepared. It's out there, beloved, and it's going to intensify as the days go on. That's what the apostle is getting at preparing the first century Christians for and what the Spirit is preparing 21st century Christians for who walk worthy of the name and are known as Christians because I stand for what the word of God and Christ himself stood for. And in that context, the apostle speaks of such righteous, such upright people being scarcely saved. And if that's so, where in the world shall the ungodly and the sinner appear?
we're going to flesh that out now, what the apostle means and what he's getting at by phrasing it in that fashion. But it must be seen in the context of 17 and 19 as well. So the righteous who are surely saved yet are scarcely saved by testing means in a humbling and wonderful manner and with a calling necessarily implied as you find that in verse 19. Don't cease the life of well-doing knowing that if you do what's right, because that's what it's really speaking of, right doing, you're going to bring who knows what kind of attention to yourself and maybe even have to count a certain cost. The righteous, scarcely say, by testing means in a humbling, wonderful manner and with a calling necessarily implied. What the apostle is dealing with in this section of the epistle is how Christ Jesus accomplishes and accomplished, but really accomplishes the salvation of New Testament believers. And by accomplishes, I do not mean how he secured that salvation and how he worked it in a man's heart. He secured that salvation, of course, by his death on the cross, and by his securing that salvation by dying for his own, they are, and we are certainly to be saved for time and eternity, and are the recipients of the irresistible grace of a heart-transforming spirit. By accomplished, I don't mean how he secured it, but we mean how he is pleased to work that salvation out in such a way that it becomes apparent that a man who was once dead in trespasses and sins is a new man, has a new life, and has become a disciple of Christ, or in the language of the apostle as he began the epistle, a pilgrim and stranger in this land, and lives as one who serves the true and living God, the God of the Old Testament, and the God of the New Testament faith. How does Christ accomplish that? How does he work that so that it comes to evidence in the life of a man and a woman? And the apostle is making plain that he does that in what we might call difficult and testing and trying and sometimes even <coughs> costly ways that cost one much. And the way he, and, that, and by the way, having wanting to make that point, he brings this matter of judgment into the text because it's by these judgments that he accomplishes, that is, works out salvation so that it comes to evidence and demonstration whose we are and whose we are willing to be in the face of who knows what kind of opposition, you see. The word judgments here does not refer to the final judgment. As though the apostle is saying, when the final judgment comes, first the house of God will be judged, and after the house of God is judged, then 
the rest of the world will be judged. He's not talking about the final judgment. In fact, he's not really even talking about assessing, judging as Christ assesses us in this life, so that first he assesses his own people and the house of God, and then he assesses the life of the ungodly. Rather, what he has in mind are the judgments that fall upon creation that we call calamities and catastrophes that are the result of the rebellion of our first parents. And suddenly death is worked and you have these catastrophes and the calamities like floods and famines and fires and fevers and diseases and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places and the list goes on. And there's death as a result of these judgments that fall upon the creation. Floods and famines and fires and fevers, diseases and all the rest. But the thing about those judgments, beloved, is that they don't discriminate between the righteous and the unrighteous and the believer and the unbeliever. And if you're a Christian and have become a Christian, don't worry about those judgments because you will never be touched by them. You'll never get cancer. Oh, really? You'll never contract COVID. Oh, really? You'll never have a little one born and only a week or two out of the womb die. Really? And you will never have any children experience some tragic accident. Really? We know better. When these judgments, which the text says, are according to the will of God, verse 19, when they come, they don't discriminate between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous also suffer these things in this life. And when bombs fell in World War II, wasn't just the ungodly in the Netherlands that died. There was many a righteous man and maybe even family that was put to death due to the ravages of war. Indiscriminate, you see, in these judgments. And they begin at the house of God. Before we speak about what it means to begin at, the reference to the house of God is the church institute. The Christian church as the church institute where the name of God is. And that covers a spectrum in time of churches. It's not just one particular church or denomination. It's a spectrum of churches that go by the name of Christian in which remnants of the elect can be found. That's not just one denomination, is it? Even today, many denominations, now in some denominations, the percentage of the remnant might be larger than in others because apostasy has set in in some. But the house of God as the church institute that goes by the name Christian, where his name is still found and he still has his own. That's the house of God in which there are then righteous and unrighteous, spiritual and carnal, just like the parable. The second parable Christ taught of the wheat and the tares, the owner of the field sows the wheat, an enemy comes and sows the tares, and the owner of the field says to his servants, let them both exist together, and I'll finally separate them when the harvest comes, the judgment day. And that's not just talking about the world, that parable, it's talking about the church, telling the disciples in the church you're going to have carnal as well as spiritual, which you will not be able to discern always who the carnal is, but I know who they are, and I will do the sorting out as time goes on. The house of God in the New Testament age. 
And it's these judgments that fall upon creation, you see, in the New Testament age that have that church institute in mind that goes by the name Christian, in which Christ has his own. And the reason that the apostle deals with this, explaining why it begins there, and I'll explain what that means, just that word begin means at just a point, a moment, is because once these, once these Gentiles became Christians, they, they were perplexed that they weren't spared the judgments because when they were Gentile pagan idolaters, when these judgments fell, when you had a great earthquake and there was calamities in the city and buildings fell on people, the judgments of the gods, the judgments of the gods were under, under wrath, were under wrath. We must placate the gods, and they would try to placate the gods to hopefully prevent, they thought, prevent another earthquake from having more buildings collapse on people or some plague going through the, the city or what have you. Let's placate the gods. It's judgment of God. And became Christians. Jehovah is the true God. We put ourselves under the protection and care of Jehovah God in the name of Jesus. And the judgments kept falling. And they kept dying. How can this be? They asked the apostles. We're under his protection and care. Has he forgotten to be kind? We still have little ones who die of disease. We still have to bury loved ones. Is he still angry with us? Is he still full of wrath? Is that why? Even though we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's still angry, there's still wrath, he's still punishing us. And the apostle has to give an answer to that, you see. Because in fact, what the, the new, new Christian said, in fact, it's worse for us now with respect to suffering than before our conversion. Before our conversion, we just suffered death by these judgments that fell. Now, you can add to that persecution. We suffer more now than we did before we believed. Now we even suffer because we believe. We are the objects of animosity and reproach and cast off by our own families and ostracized and property is taken from us and even threatened to throw us into jail. And Some of us are whipped for Jesus' name. We had it better from that point when we weren't Christians. And you say, this is the will of God? Where's the love? Feels an awful lot like wrath. Apostle says, No, you have become Christians. You must understand that you are still to suffer, but you must understand it has a different purpose now. And it does have to do with your salvation, whether you can see it or not. And that's what that word begins bring home. For the time has come, New Testament age. That judgment must begin at the house of God. When he says begin, he does not mean, as I've said, that first he takes care of the house of God and applies to them, and then after he's afflicted them, he goes on to the rest of the world. That word begins has to do with primarily in mind, principally with you in mind, and whether you can see it or not, principally, primarily, with the salvation of that church in mind, that is the preservation of the church, the house of God, which houses the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, which the Spirit will use for the salvation of not only yourself, as he has, but in the end of the whole of 
elect mankind as time goes on. So these judgments continue to fall, but whether you understand it first at all, they are now falling for your salvation, for the preservation of the Christian church, and with the preservation of the Christian church, the gospel, which you so sorely need in the interest of your own salvation and preservation of your spiritual life. That's what he's getting at, you see. Begins, that is, primarily for your sake, with you in mind, the church institute as the preaching of the gospel, the pillar of ground of truth, which is so important for the salvation of my people, Christ's people in the New Testament age. Now, let me demonstrate that, beloved, from the Holy Scriptures. Because the apostle is saying, oh no, it's not that God is forgetting to be kind. And don't think that now that you're a Christian, these judgments are tokens of wrath. They are not tokens of wrath. They are how Christ is going to accomplish the salvation of his own as they are found in the church institute and the church institute is used for the preservation of salvation. I'm going to demonstrate that, beloved, by turning to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is the opening of the seven-sealed book. Who opens the seven-sealed book? The Lamb, who hath ascended up on high, does he not? Who is worthy to open the book? And there was none found until the, the Lion of Judah's tribe appeared. He ascended up on high. He's called the Lion of Judah's tribe because he's the royal one, but he appears as the Lamb because this is Christ crucified and risen from the dead. On the basis of his death as the Lamb, he has the right to control the whole of New Testament history and there's only reason, one reason, beloved, why there's any New Testament history, why the world was not judged after Christ ascended up onto high and high and simply brought an end to it all. The world, in some ways, was ripe for judgment, you could say, with all of its wickedness. Bring an end to it. But you have New Testament history. Why? Beloved, you sitting there and me standing here is part of the reason why. We had been bought by the blood. We were numbered with the elect, and we had to be saved, born and saved. And so New Testament history continues as long as the last of the elect has not been born and saved. And when the last of the elect is born and saved, then comes the end finally. We will close the book of history. So the whole purpose of New Testament history is the gathering of the church from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are numbered with the elect by means of the preaching of the gospel which is to be used by the Church Institute, which Christ preserved. Now, six. He has the book. He has the right to open the seven-sealed book that reveal, re opens the whole pages of history, chapter by chapter. The Lamb opened one of the seals. I heard, as it were, the sound noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. Behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him. He went forth conquering and to conquer. And who does that represent? Represents, as most of you know, the preaching of the gospel directed by Christ himself, the white rider on the white horse. The whole of New Testament history is the gospel going forth like a conquering champion warrior, you'll see, delivering his own from the hands of Satan and casting down the evil one himself from the heart of those bought by the blood. The white horse, the spread of the, the, spread of the gospel and the victories of the gospel. 
That's the primary purpose of the New Testament age. Now you have three horses that follow, and they're in the service, you see, of this gospel horse, the white horse. He opens the second seal. A second beast says, come and see. Another horse, red power given to him that sat thereon, peace, to take peace from the earth. This is representing war that would run throughout the whole of New Testament history. And then a third beast, come and see, verse 5. A black horse, and then a pair of balances, and measure of wheat for a penny, and so on. And it represents these different judgments that have to do with famines, and floods, and fires, and shortages, you see. And some prosper, and some almost starve to death. And there's tensions in society as a result. And the fourth seal, and a pale horse of a greenish sort. And he was called death and the grave, says hell, but the grave followed with him. Power is given over the fourth part of the, of the earth. Diseases in which works death. Those three horses representing the judgments of God that continue to fall on creation, but in the service of the white horse. War and these judgments, beloved, are always in the service of the preaching of the gospel and the spread of the gospel and the saving of those appointed unto salvation by means of the church institute as it brings the gospel and preaches the gospel. Give you an instance. First century, Rome didn't take so long and the Christians were blamed for this, that, and the other thing and they became the objects of this fiery persecution. But what's interesting is that Rome did not stamp out Christianity in part because Rome's attention was this. Uh, distracted and deflected by the barbarians from the north that were threatening and she had to pay attention to her northern border the Germanic tribes up there our ancestors were giving Rome a lot of trouble and threatening the whole of Rome so they had to they, they had to direct their attention there also and not give their complete attention simply to stamping out Christianity and as you know beloved it was persecution that even enhanced and was useful means for the spread of the gospel. They gathered early on, you know, right around the, the, uh, the church of Jerusalem and stayed there, the Christians. And then the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests went after them, hammer and tongs, and they fled. And they took the gospel with them. They went to Damascus, and a church began in Damascus. They went to Antioch of, of Syria, where they are first called Christians, and that Antioch of Assyria with his Christian church there and churches became the if you recall the center of mission work using the Apostle Paul with Barnabas and Silas and and so on so the persecution even was useful served the spread of the gospel and we often have said it's the blood of the saints who have suffered martyrdom that becomes the seeds of the church and warrants the faith and even is used for, for, for by God to gather others I want to give you one other instance of how God uses the judgment of, of war and so on for the preservation of the church that has the gospel. Reformation. We know our Reformation history rather well from the point of view of Luther and Calvin and they're paying the price by standing for the truth and preaching, re recovering the gospel and then suffering as a result of it, the opposition of, of Rome and of the Roman Catholic princes and so on. But what we 
don't know so well is for all the animosity of Rome and the Roman Catholic princes, the Protestant religion, the return to scripture was not stamped out. It was not simply destroyed. And in large measure, that was because there was a threat from the east of the Seljuk Turks that had advanced through whole of Eastern Europe and were at the doors of Vienna, and they were threatening the whole of Western Europe. And the princes of Europe knew that if they did not stop the Seljuk Turks, that Seljuk Turks with the army would simply come over the whole of Western Europe and they would be themselves defeated and Christianity would be no more, even in, in its Romish form, but they would be under the rule of the Muslims, as happened in Northern Africa. But to withstand, to withstand the Seljuk Turks, those Roman Catholic princes needed the help of Protestant princes. They knew they could not do it all by themselves. And so they were willing to give the Protestant princes a little space with Protestant believers in their provinces in the interest of using those young men to withstand the threat of what was coming from the east. The red horse, you see, used in the preservation of the church institute, which treasured the true gospel and was a means of spreading the true gospel. And we could go on and on. These are simply instances that demonstrate the truth of what the apostle is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 4. beginning at the house of God with the preservation of the church institute in which his people were, I mean every last soul, but his people were found and the gospel so that it might be preserved and it might be preached for the gathering of those ordained into eternal life. And so it will go because these judgments prevent, you see, the anti-Christian kingdom with the spirit from becoming just one great kingdom and then having nothing to distract anymore can simply focus on those who hold to the true faith and exterminate those who hold to the truth of the scriptures and the true gospel. Those days come. In the meantime, as you know, wars and rumors of war keep the nations fixed on each other and they can't focus simply on that which preaches truth and are the true people of God. Those days come, but they are not yet. God be thanked. So that's one purpose of these judgments for this preservation of the gospel in the church institute so that it might be spread and gather God's people. But there's another purpose that these judgments of God serve, and that has to do with the purging of the church, of the truth, that, will, that church will be faithful to the, to the truth. Because in the church, no matter what church, you find carnal. That was true in the early New Testament church, too. Many just joined for who knows what reasons. And there was, they did not have deepness of root. Read your parables. They joined with a certain enthusiasm. And then what happened? We read according to Christ. There's going to come a time when there's going to be severity and persecution. And they're not going to be willing to count the cost. And they separate themselves from the, the church. And in, by means of their separation, leaving the church... The church is purged and preserved, lest the carnal element, you see, become majority and rule all things. But if you have those who are simply Christian in name only, they say, we're willing to abide with Christians, but if we become the object of animosity and persecution, we're not going to suffer for Christ's sake. We're not going to pay that price, that cost. We're out of here. We leave. 
and they deny the faith because they really had no true faith and no deepness of root. But in that way, the church has been purged time and time again so that the carnal in the end don't completely take over and dominate every facet of Christ's church to which he has entrusted the gospel, a purging. Just like you had, you know, with um, Demas, who followed and made a profession, and then he says, Paul says to Timothy at one point, but Demas, Demas hath forsaken me, loving this present world. And by the love of the present world, also Paul is saying that he does not want to count the cost of discipleship. He's not going to take up his cross and deny himself. He wants the world. He doesn't deny himself and follow Christ. And so he has departed. But that in the end is for the advantage and the benefit of the church that remains faithful. But one more thing we must remind ourselves of the love. These judgments that fall upon us that cause suffering and grief are for our sake in the way of purifying ourselves too. Is that not true? God uses the hammer blows sometimes of severe affliction to purify us and to get our priorities straight. Because we are men of like passion and you know when it's planting season things need to be planted and when it's harvest season things need to be harvested before the weather sets in and I lose my crop and so Lord when we find time when it's convenient during this few weeks we'll, we'll, we'll make some devotions but later and this isn't just happening in farm communities we all know this and when it's convenient, Lord, because I'm very, very busy right now. I'm occupied. I have to make a living. And when I can find time, Lord, I'll go to prayer and scripture reading and feed my soul. But i got other things to do now. And then in the midst of that comes some tragedy. And suddenly this whole matter of having to make a living right now is put in its place. And the priority is my spiritual needs and the spiritual needs of my loved ones and maybe of a whole congregation because of a terrible tragedy that has shaken you to your roots. And suddenly we're men of prayer and we're men of conversing together about spiritual matters. And it's the eternal verities that mean the most. The Lord has a way of waking us up, doesn't he? in the midst of life and of death and what should come first and must come first lest we become complacent. And Lord, when it's convenient, we'll find some time for you and your word and our own spiritual growth. We have other things to tend to right now, but not when suffering comes, beloved. Not when suffering comes in one shape or form or the other. Then we realize we need more than for the body. We need what God has provided for the souls, and we are woken, awakened by these judgments, these severe me measures that are visited upon us. So even for our own purifying. And it's in that context that the apostle says, if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? It's an interesting phrase. It first begin at us. What shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel? And what 
the apostle is saying here is, if the Lord Christ is willing to deal with his own in severe ways, even to watch us suffer, and even to bring things to pass that cause us to suffer, maybe even to the point of a man being burned at the stake as a martyr, and that's according to the will of Christ. He doesn't just allow it. He wills that in the end. If he is willing to have his people endure such severe sufferings, how do you think he's going to deal with those who obey not the gospel, who have turned their back on the gospel, who have despised the gospel, and not only despised the gospel, but despised and assaulted those who maintain the gospel. You think they aren't going to suffer severely? If he's even willing to have his own whom he loves suffer severely? And now he's going to spare those who despise the gospel and afflict his own people? You think so? His own body? You better think again, Apostle is saying. Consider what the end of such shall be. You think your suffering is severe? Have you thought about the end of those who have turned their back on the gospel and have forsaken the Christian faith because they don't want to be identified with Christ? Consider their end. That's going to make the severity of our sufferings pale, pale in comparison when all is said and done. And don't think it's beyond Christ. If he can will suffering in its severity upon us, in his righteousness, what do you think is going to fall upon the ungodly? And the unbeliever, consider that. That's what the apostle is getting at. And that's even, beloved, that's even for our sakes to a degree that we hear that. The judgments, the wrath, sounds almost like a threat. So if I turn my back on the Christian faith and forsake it, this could happen to me. That's even more, that's even worse than suffering for Christ's sake. Say, well, we don't need that. Just preach the gospel, the cross, Christ crucified, Christ dying for me, his great love, and I'll be moved with gratitude and serve him. That should be enough. It should be, beloved. It should be enough. But there are times when it is not. Ask elders who are engaged in the work of discipline and one who is walking the way of sin and who knows what folly, what addiction to what sin or what mistreatment of of a marriage or what have you. And a person walking in that way, you can ask your elders, saying, oh, I'm still right with God. I'm living in this sin, but I'm still right with God. Oh, really? You're living in this sin, and you're right with God. Let, let me tell you something, sir or ma'am. The way you're walking is the broad way that leads to destruction. Do you know what the end of this way is? You continue in this way unrepented? It's death. You know what follows death? Something worse than death. Consider the end of the way, sir, ma'am. We have the well-being of your soul, your salvation in mind. It's not salvation you're following. It's destruction to yourself and even, who knows, family members. Wake up. That's in keeping with his text, you see. That's part of what must be brought home to those who actually are saved, actually are believers, but for a time are overcome by the evil one walking in the ways of folly then comes the threat and the reminder and we all hear that and consider the 
the ways and why. This is the way of wisdom, the ways of God. And those are not. They're the ways of folly and of death and of who knows what consequences. Lord, keep us, keep me too from such folly because who is not a man of like passion left to himself? So this word, you see, for all of us from a certain point of view. That brings us back to this matter of judgments. If the righteous be scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, when it speaks here of the righteous, the text is speaking not simply of those who are members of the Christian church, be they carnal or spiritual, talking about the saved, that is, the upright. That's the emphasis here of the righteousness, not justification. Now, one who is upright is numbered with the justified, but that's not what the apostle has in mind, justification. What he has in mind is one who is worth is living as a Christian. He's been justified, but now he lives it out, you see, and he lives in an upright way. That's why the contrast between the righteous and the ungodly and the sinner. We live in an upright way and leave the ways of the ungodly and the sinners and eschew those ways, keep them away from ourselves. The contrast, you see, with the ungodly and the sinners. And what the apostle is speaking of here is in, is in harmony with what you read in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Persecuted for righteousness sake. That's not being persecuted for being justified. The world doesn't care whether you're justified or not. Just as long as you don't live uprightly and condemn them by your Christian behavior. It's when you start living as a Christian and by your very walk rebuke them for their immorality, they get angry. Oh, you think you're better than us, huh? Yeah, you think you're better. So you're going to rebuke and reprove me for, for, for this immorality? Oh, you think you're better than we are, huh? No, I'm a sinner like you are. But that's the way that has the displeasure of God. Don't walk in those ways. There's consequences. There's judgments that, of wrath that will fall upon you, don't you see? It's when you live uprightly, beloved, that you call attention to yourself as a Christian. <coughs> and that irritates the ungodly. Ask Apostle Paul when he was Saul how Christians didn't irritate him. Until Christ, of course, took hold of him and transformed him. He hated those miserable Christians part because of how they lived and really how their charity and love put him and his venom to shame. Pricked his conscience every time he was around them. I'll silence them. Christ saw it differently and worked differently. So it is. Scarcely. Scarcely doesn't mean almost beyond the power of God to do so. In fact, so much so scarce, so difficult is it for God to save us that there are some in the end who, who he wants to save are finally lost. That's not what the apostle is speaking of here. This, he's speaking to the elect in the end who are surely saved. But scarcely has to do with saved in difficult ways and in costly ways. So that, beloved, we even cost God Scarcely saved because of what we cost God. But it begins, first of all, as I have said, in a humbling way, when we consider ourselves, we may be upright. We are scarcely saved. We are saved with difficulty when you consider what we face and the temptations that we face, and we have our nature that remains so susceptible 
and to withstand temptation. You know how difficult that is? Left to ourselves, we'll have what? We fall, every one of us. Without grace in the operations of the Spirit, everyone is susceptible to something or other, and we would fall into some lamentable way and go the perishing way if we were not upheld by the grace of the Holy Spirit, this divine power, you see, saved, scarcely saved because of what we face and how easily we can be overwhelmed. And then persecution added to it. And to face the persecution, you think it was easy for a man, beloved, to have the interrogators say, and if you don't deny Christ, you see that stake out there with that pile of wood? We're going to burn you to death slowly. We're going to roast you to death. Oh, do that. The man had to sit down and say, can I endure that? Can I possibly endure that? Oh, Lord, give me the grace to endure that, even to the laying down of my own life. And maybe we're going to take your children as well. Who, can, who could do that of, the, of themselves? Scarcely saved, you see. The grace we need day by day by day by day and why that needs priority and not, well, when it's convenient for us because if that becomes our religion. We're heading for some lamentable fall. Is that not true? But even from God's point of view, as I have said, to save us, beloved, demanded his most beloved shall I say, possession, his own son, the only way possible. Christ in the garden said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he goes to the cross anyway because it's not possible. There can possibly be salvation other than he suffers the wrath of God. We cost God that much. Ask the writer of this epistle, beloved, what he cost God and why. That was the only way. Who would not identify himself with Christ? Simon Peter. Oh, Lord. They'll all forsake you, but not me. And he fell. And he denied his Lord with cursing and with swearing. And he went out and wept bitterly. And I'm convinced, was convinced, I'm lost. I committed the unpardonable sin. This can't be forgiven. And then his Lord went to the cross. And he had to go to the cross for sinners like that. To redeem them. And then appeared to Simon Peter and said, even that sin, Simon, has been taken care of. But at the cost of my life, and God paid for you by pouring his wrath out on me instead of you. Beloved, that wonderful way, scarcely saved. The devil didn't even think it was possible. I have him. He can't possibly be saved. And yet God has his own way and his wisdom and his power and his deep, unfathomable and wonderful, scarcely saved. Now, you tell me how a man can be saved outside of Christ. I'm not going to be identified with this Lord Jesus because if I am and I do going to bring suffering to myself, so I'll just live blending in with the world, and no one will know I'm a Christian. I'm not going to be identified with Christ. I can just live a good life, and perhaps when I die, I'll still either avoid 
everlasting condemnation or maybe even end up in, in heaven. Who knows? You think so? One moment? Outside of Christ? There is no salvation, beloved, outside of Christ. And apart from in the end, willing to be identified with Christ, to confess one's faith in Christ, and to do that in the end, even before the world. So scarcely say, but where then will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Be sure the grace will be there to be preserved. And that's how this text concludes. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. Because, in some ways he's saying, make sure you're suffering for Christ's sake and not because you're, you've been, been involved in criminal behavior. So from some point of view, according to the will of God, you've been walking in his will, but because this is also his will that you suffer, Commit the keeping of your soul to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Wherefore, he says, in light of this, that it may seem that the wicked are triumphing and they always have it their way. They grow in number, they grow in wealth, and their eyes stand out with fatness, and they do not suffer as other men do. But we, we are despised and we suffer these things. How did we sing it? While I daily chasten, see troubles increase. Wherefore, keep in mind the end. It may seem they're triumphing, but the end, they're not going to triumph. They're going to be punished everlastingly. And it's the faith of the godly that's going to be vindicated and being identified with Christ as a Christian. So, in view of that, commit the keeping of your soul to him as unto a faithful creator. Notice, faithful creator. It says soul because you may have to pay for it with your body. But as the scripture says, don't fear those who can merely kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and soul in hell. That's the one you have to stand in awe of and give account to. Don't worry about men. They may take the body, but not the soul. God has the power over the body and the soul, and he's able to keep your souls as a faithful creator. He's a savior. Creator means his power. He's the almighty when he made the soul. He can keep the soul. And notice the word faithful. That's the outstanding word, isn't it? We, like Simon Peter, may at a point become unfaithful and stumble and fall. And there may well be consequences to it. But God knows his own. And he is faithful. And he has the way of bringing one back. And then, like Simon Peter saying at one point, I've been redeemed body and soul, all my sins forgiven. He was willing to identify himself with me. Sinner though I am, I will not be ashamed of his name. I will identify myself with him openly and come what may. I won't simply set aside Christianity so I can fly under the radar. No, I'll be identified with him knowing he went to the cross for me. And God will give me the grace I need and my loved ones to persevere in this way as he preserves me by his grace. Seek it, beloved, and make it a matter of priority. And you, too, will know the good will of God. Amen.